All right, turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 14, if you would, please. We're going to be jumping back into the Gospel of John. And just to relocate us where we are here, John chapters 13 through 17 all take place on one night, Thursday night, the night that Christ will be betrayed, arrested, and eventually crucified. And so we have these 12 chapters that that cover years of Christ's life, and then we have these five chapters where... We just get this incredible zoom in on this one evening where our Lord speaks, and it's just absolutely astounding, deep, rich truth. These are, in my opinion, easily some of the most glorious chapters in all of Scripture. And we're still kind of toward the front end of this conversation. We're picking up at the beginning of John chapter 14, just following uh, Christ telling his disciples that one of them will betray him and that Peter is going to deny him three times. So we pick up John chapter 14, verse 1, going through verse 14. This is the word of the Lord. Our Lord says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and is it enough? And, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father." Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. One of the most influential people in my life was my grandpa. He was a a pastor, a longtime missionary to Ghana, Africa, just a a loving, gracious man, the best best grandpa I could have ever hoped for. But but one of the things that I, I most enjoyed about him was his 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 seemingly never ending knowledge. So starting at age twelve, and I can say that I remember the day vividly. Actually, I have a picture of us in the backyard having this conversation. Uh, starting then and, and really going all the way till my my mid twenties until he died. Whenever we were together, I would just grill him with questions. I got to the point where I just prepare the questions in advance and just ranging all sorts of subjects and, and he'd engage me and we'd just have these wonderful long conversations and it just, it didn't seem to matter the topic, he, he could speak intelligently about it, which just impressed me so much, it was just, you know, kind of a model for my life, I guess, but, but of all the enjoyable subjects that we covered, the most meaningful conversations were those that, that centered around God and scripture. Again, he, he just had this inexhaustible 
knowledge and love of God and his word. And so because of that, even, even when we'd be talking about non-biblical issues, you know, some current event or something, he'd ask, well, what, is, what does scripture have to say about that? And then he'd kind of walk me through that, not only teaching me the importance of knowing scripture and how we kind of apply it to life and think, think biblically, um, really it just kind of showed me how much, again, he just knew God and his word. He was just saturated in it. And that was what I wanted. In a vivid way, he made it extremely clear the most important thing in life is to know God. Now, we, we live in a, a time with never any knowledge about virtually everything. Most of us spend a lot of our weeks just consuming massive amounts of content. I don't know this is, if this is true, but it rings true to me. I heard, heard someone say recently that the, the average person consumes more information in one week than the average person in the Middle Ages would have in, in, in their entire life. And, of course, there's plenty of time we could be spending on subjects that we shouldn't be spending on. But there's a lot of very interesting subjects. And I, I admonish you, pursue a rich life of the mind. Learn about all sorts of subjects. That's, that's an enjoyable pursuit. But the most important subject you can ever know, what we must be spending our life pursuing, is knowing God. That is to be absolutely central. Because that is the only way we know ourselves. It's the only way to understand this crazy world we live in. It's the only way to think well. It's the only way to faithfully proclaim the gospel. It's the only way to truly live a life of love that glorifies him. That is by knowing him. Knowing God is to be central to our lives as believers. And so this morning, we're going to be considering why that's so important in our text, both for this life and the next. And so the first truth that we come across in our text about the importance of knowing God is to know God means that we must believe in God. And I want to emphasize some of the practical benefits of believing in God, and we find three of those in our text this morning. In verse 1, Christ begins with this wonderful statement, let not your hearts be troubled, which could be translated, stop letting your hearts be in turmoil. Why was he saying this, though? Well, because he was about to leave them and return to his heavenly throne, but but the path to his ascension, of course, was his betrayal, unjust arrest, torture, and murder. He then, of course, will conquer death, raising from the dead. But 40 days later, he would return to heaven, no longer being physically present with them. And he knew that those events would be devastating to them. If you think about that, though, hours before he's going to suffer in ways that we can't even really quite fathom, Christ's concern is not for himself, but rather it's for his disciples. He's he's actually comforting them rather than them comforting him for what he's about to endure, which is the the greatest act of evil in history, when the powers of darkness have their way and the religious authorities combine with the state to unjustly, brutally murder the only perfect human who is love. But again, his concern here isn't himself, it's actually comforting them. But the comfort he offers aren't these, you know, superficial platitudes of, it'll be okay, guys, things always work out on the end, in the end. No, he, he knows that their hearts will only find rock-solid steadfastness when the world goes mad in one way, as he says in verse 1, by believing in God and in him. Once again, equating himself with the Father. And he says this because he is the God of all comfort. 
as 2 Corinthians 1.3 says. He's our rock. He's our fortress. He's our firm foundation when everything is falling apart around us. And he is that by our, when we put our belief, when we put our trust in him. And you might remember back a couple of months in chapter 11 in Lazarus, we talked about how belief means trust in Christ in all things. So this is the first practical result of knowing and believing God in Christ. Trusting him means our hearts won't be troubled when the world is freaking out around us. The second result of believing in Christ is that we will know our future, and it's a guaranteed future because Christ, who is God, says it's guaranteed. In verses 2 and 3, Christ reminds us of, of what that guaranteed future is. It's our eternal, true, heavenly home that he was leaving to prepare for his disciples and, and all of us, all his future disciples, you and me. So the, again, the cross would be devastating to his disciples, but he's, he's reminding them this is the path to his returning to the Father and preparing their eternal home. And since he's preparing theirs and our true home, he says that means he's coming back to take us there, where we will live with him in his presence forever. What, a, what an incredibly intimate picture this is of, of Christ himself preparing our homes personally and bringing us to them personally. Now, whether that, that means the rapture of the church or our dying and immediately being in the presence of our Lord, the point is, this is our guaranteed future. This is what we long for. This life is not it. It's cool to have a nice home, but we have to remember that home will eventually return to dust along with our bodies. But our, our heavenly homes, prepared by Christ himself, are eternal, perfect, beautiful, glorious. And of course, the, the most glorious thing about this is that we, we actually get to live in the presence of our Lord forever. We will see him with our eyes. Now, I don't know all the details of that, but we will be in relationship with him. I, I assume talking with him in some way, worshiping him, enjoying him, and the heaven that he has prepared for us. And you go down that path, and it's almost too much to take. You know, we just, we just can't wait. Yet, it didn't seem like his disciples were necessarily there yet, at least not Thomas, who in verse 4, when Christ says, you know the way to where I'm going, Thomas basically says, no, we don't. How could we? We don't even know where you're going, let alone how we're supposed to get there. And when Christ says that he is the way, which we'll get to in a moment, he adds in verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known, the fa known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him, to which now in verse 8, Philip jumps in and he says, we've seen him. I don't remember that. Show us him now, and we're cool. That'll be enough. Then we can really believe. Now, it's easy to, to read Thomas and Philip's responses and, and wonder, man, how could these guys be so clueless after they've walked with Christ for years? Christ even seems to, to mention that in verse 9. It's like, yeah, what's wrong with these guys? But I'm, I'm thankful for their, for their responses because they're, they're so much like us. They're so much like how I am so much of the time. You know, Thomas is a little lost because his focus seems to be on the, the temporal rather than the eternal. His reply seemed to maybe indicate, I, I guess maybe he thought Christ was going somewhere else on the earth where apparently he was building a village for his followers. They just needed a map to get there. It seemed like he kind of missed the whole heaven thing, 
which that's, that's never us, right? We, we never prioritize this life over the next. We're never totally myopically focused on the here and now over eternity. But Philip's statement is, is likely all too relatable as well. He basically said, yes, we, we've, we've seen the Father work through you. We've witnessed some pretty incredible things, but, but we want more. We want to actually see God. If we could just see him, then our faith would be secure. If, we, if you would just visibly show him to us, all doubt would go away, and then we'd have this rock-solid faith. Again, that's pretty common. The problem, though, is that's not actually true. And we know it's not true because God did appear. He did reveal himself. He was standing right there talking with them. Jesus Christ, God incarnate. And that's exactly what Christ reminds Philip of in verse 10. As he previously said back in chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. He's in me. I'm in him. If you've seen him, if, excuse me, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, who later in this chapter Christ says will will come and dwell with and in them after he leaves. The Father, Son, and Spirit are God, the same nature as Christ said multiple times. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Which is the third result of believing in Christ, knowing that the Father, Son, and Spirit are one. And notice Christ says believing is twofold. First... It's based on evidence, as he said to Philip in verse 11. Believe that Christ is God through his works. Throughout the Gospel of John, we've highlighted this many times. Christ performed miracles, which were signs pointing to him as the promised Messiah, God himself, that that the scriptures had pointed to. So belief is partly based on evidence. But ultimately, belief involves knowing who Christ is, which again is our main point for today. Now, I said earlier, to know God, we have to believe in God, but this works both ways. They're they're completely connected. To believe in God, we must know him. To know him, we must believe in him. This is all part of the same package. Belief is trust in Christ, but that means we have to know who it is that we're trusting in. And this brings us squarely to the most important verse in this section, one of the most important verses in all of Scripture, a verse that tells us exactly who this Christ we believe in is, which to believers is the all-glorious one whom we live completely for and surrender our lives to, but to unbelievers, who he says he is here, the world hates, despises. They're going to murder him in a few hours because of who he is. They've murdered many of his followers since. That's one of the difficulties of this section. If you believe... And preach what Christ says about himself here, which is exactly what we are all called to do. You will have life and you will have it abundantly. Yet at the same time, you will be hated. As Christ says in the very next chapter, again, part of the same conversation, 1518. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. As ambassadors of Christ who preach the gospel, we will be hated as Christ was hated. And we seem to be seeing that more and more right now, which is a hard reality, but we need to live in reality. This is who Christ is, and knowing and believing in him means that we stand boldly and lovingly in this truth. We don't change it. We don't soft-pedal it. We don't dance around it. He didn't. We most certainly cannot either. And the reason being, the reason that's so important 
is because all of life and eternity, every person's eternity is staked on what they do with this next I am statement in verse 6, when Christ, as God, says about himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So if you want to know who God is, here he is. This is God in Christ. In a very real way, the gospel is encapsulated in this I am statement. And like I said, in a real way, much of what the world and specifically our culture hates is encapsulated in this statement. Which is to say, digging into this verse is spectacularly important. We really need to understand this. Now, I have to say, if I had my way, I'd spend three weeks on this verse. One week on the way, one week on the truth, one week on the life. I feel like it's that important, but I don't run the show around here, so we're not going to be doing that. Maybe you're happy about that, I don't know, but hopefully I can do it justice in a, in a short amount of time. So let's, let's look at this incredible I am statement of Christ, where again, first he says, I am the way. This is the exclusivity of the gospel. Now, the gospel is inclusive in that the call goes out to everyone, and heaven will be filled with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But it is exclusive in that there are not many paths to salvation. There is one path, the narrow path, Christ himself, as he categorically says, he is not a way, he is the way. Which means no one from the L.A. hipster to the guy in the Amazon jungle comes to the Father, is saved, but through him. But right here is where we run into trouble. Because our culture, the world, cannot stand this kind of exclusivism. And that's why Christ says in Luke 12, 51, Do you think that I have come to give you peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division, even dividing between families, he goes on to say. Offense at this exclusivism is so prevalent that even many evangelicals struggle with this for, for many of the same reasons that an unbeliever might. How could a God of, of love create a world like this. But what about that guy in the Amazon who's never heard of Christ that you talked about? I mean, you're, you're telling me he just goes to hell? How's that fair? I've actually had firsthand experience with, with how much people grate against this. A little while back, I, I had opportunity to meet with someone over coffee specifically to, to talk about faith and truth. We came there knowing we were going to do that. He was this uh, 20-something 20, 20 from Iran, and at the time, he'd, he'd been in the U.S. for a couple of years. Really wonderful guy, really neat guy, very fun to talk with. Uh, and, and being Iranian, going into the discussion, I kind of brushed up on, on uh, Islam and, and uh, so on. But a, as it turned out, once we kind of started talking, his, his belief system was really kind of all over the place. So as, as I did my best to profess the gospel, it was countered by this this sort of weird combination of Islam and New Age pantheistic beliefs about a oneness energy that all of the prophets point us to, to various scientific beliefs like uh, evolution. There was even a Dianetics reference at one point. Like I said, it was just kind of all over the place. And, and I, I did my best to really hear and respond to, not just kind of dismiss what he was saying, even though I have to say, <laughs> I have to say it was kind of largely incoherent. But finally, after... After multiple attempts to just kind of share the main points of the gospel, of course, centering on our sin and who Christ is, it finally connected with him. And the reason why I knew it connected was because he said, so you believe Jesus is God, 
and that sin causes us to go to hell, and then we can only be saved through Jesus. But what about the guy who lives every day for God but doesn't hear of Jesus? He, he just goes to hell? So, you know, we're back to the guy in the Amazon. Well, I said I didn't believe that ever actually happened, that God will save through Christ anyone who is truly seeking him, but that, yes, salvation is only found in Jesus and all others will not be saved. And he said, this offends me. How much better is my way? Actually, use those words. How much better is my way where, where we strive every day to do better and just live as one? We're so much more free in my way. What you're saying is so divisive. And, and then what was this very open conversation just quickly ended. He just kind of respectfully clammed up, and we said goodbye, and he walked out. You see, what, what offended him so much was hearing that Christ is the one way. We, we don't like that. We like our way, like he said. But Christ reminds us that way is the wide path, and the wide path leads to hell. Christ is the only way. And one of the reasons that is so offensive is because that way requires us to recognize that we are sinners worthy of hell. And we really don't want to hear that. We might like the, the live in eternity in a perfect place part, but we definitely don't like hearing the darkness in our hearts called out and hearing that that darkness means that we're dead spiritually and that we will die eternally in our unbelief and sin. You see, that's why I said... I don't believe the guy in the Amazon who's really good, who really wants to be saved but isn't, doesn't actually exist. Here's why. Think, think through this with me. As Romans 3 says, no one is righteous, no one does good, no one is seeking God. No one on their own is seeking God. And then we can just stick with this gospel. John 3, 19 says, Christ the light came into the world, but the world crucified him because we love the darkness rather than the light. Which is why John 1, 13 says that we aren't saved by the will of man, but of God. The will of man is to run from God, not to him. It is only those that Christ the I am wills to give life to, John 5, 21 say, says, that will be saved. Otherwise, again, no one would be saved because no one is seeking him other than those that Christ says in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's only those that God is drawing to himself who will be saved by believing in Christ. So if there's a guy in the Amazon whom God is drawing to himself, Christ will save him. Someone will be sent, such as, such as Acts 10 with Cornelius, or in some way they will be saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have many examples of that happening throughout the Muslim world in closed countries over recent years. But even if you struggle with all that theology, the point to remember that, again, is a very hard truth, is that no one deserves to be saved. That's what that question implies. What about that guy in the Amazon? He's just an innocent guy. Why isn't he saved? Because he's not innocent. No one deserves to be saved. God is not obligated to save any of us because we all deserve hell, which is why the gospel is so glorious because Christ in love came to pay the penalty that we deserve, that he did not deserve in our place to save us. He is the only way. That's why he did that. If that were not true, that would have been a tragedy. The world might hate that. We might struggle with it ourselves, but we must faithfully proclaim the true Christ because, again, that is the only way anyone is saved. Christ said this about himself. I'm not making this up. 
We can't pretend that we know better and try and soften or avoid this. Christ is the way. He also says that he is the truth. And that there is a the truth, one universal truth for all places and times, has been under constant attack. In one sense, this goes all the way back to Genesis 3 and and Satan challenging uh, God's word. The the truth is always attacked by Satan and the world. And, And, of course, that attack has taken on many different forms throughout history. One of the more recent forms in our, in our culture is the idea of my truth, me living my truth, and I encourage you to live your truth. Unless, of course, your truth excludes other people, then I don't like that truth. But otherwise, I live my truth, you live your truth. This is incredibly prevalent. You'll hear this a lot in relation to race and gender, but you're certainly going to hear it if you're witnessing to people. I've had more than one person over the years, upon talking to them about the gospel and the Christian faith, say something back to me like, you know, I'm glad that's true for you. It's not true for me, which is always kind of a jarring statement because what that means is for many, it's not about discovering the one truth. It's about looking inside of yourself and you living your truth. That's what's encouraged in our society today. But Christ says here in no uncertain terms, there is no your truth and my truth. There is no other place to find truth. It is only found in one place. So what is the truth, and where do you find it? Well, the truth is the word. John 17, 17, again, later on this same night, this same conversation, Christ says, speaking to the Father, your word is truth. The scripture we're studying is the truth. But, of course, the Bible is the words of the living word, Jesus Christ, John 1. In the beginning was the word. So where you find truth is Christ the truth. It is in Christ, Colossians 2, 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All truth is God's truth. All truth comes from God, who is truth. That's why the only way to know truth is by knowing God and his word written and incarnate. And the most important truth is truth about the way to salvation. This life is a breath, a vapor, and then we're in eternity. So like I said at the beginning, it's, it's, it's great, it's fun to learn about all aspects of life, do that. But man, we had better be concerned about eternity. That is the most important subject we can ever ponder because it lasts forever. Every person will spend eternity somewhere. Think about that. Every single person will spend eternity somewhere. And where is determined by your belief in or rejection of Christ, the way, and the truth. And unfortunately, one of the alternative ways many in our culture choose instead of Christ these days isn't necessarily always another religion, but again, just kind of their own faith. They're believing in themselves, their own truth that they find in their own hearts. But we don't find truth and beauty in our hearts despite, that, despite us being told that constantly. God's word reminds us if we're looking to ourselves to find truth, we're only going to find Darkness, lies, and sin that's a result of suppressing the truth. Remember Jeremiah 17.9, might call it the anti-Disney follow-your-heart verse, which says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart deceives us into believing lies and calling them truth. 
The heart deceives us into, as Romans 1.18 says, suppressing the truth by our own unrighteousness. It's our hearts that actually deceive us into running as far from Christ as possible by believing that there is no universal truth. There certainly is not a God who is truth. There's just my truth. I'm the God of my own life. I have nobody to answer to but me. I determine this life and the next if there even is one. Now, this is not to mock or belittle in any way anybody who thinks that. By no means. This is to provide an honest look about what we're living in. This is the culture that we live in. We're surrounded by people who believe this. And this is a tragedy of the highest order. This isn't a let's agree to disagree thing. Again, I keep saying this. This is eternal. The stakes are eternal. Where we will spend eternity is completely determined by this. Do we believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one will be saved but through him? If we don't, if we reject that, we will spend eternity in hell as the just punishment for our sin and rejection of the way Jesus Christ. That's why I said the gospel is packed in this verse. We can't know the truth about God, this world, our own hearts, our eternity apart from Christ, the word, the truth. And although we don't like hearing our hearts are desperately wicked, we don't like hearing in the end we can't be our own gods and live out our own truth. Christ loves us way too much to let us live in that lie because that lie leads to death. We think it's what's best for us. We think it's what we want, but it just leads to death. But repenting and believing in Christ, the truth, that is the way, it is the only way to life. Which is the next part of Christ's statement, that he is the life. Again, this is the sixth of Christ's seven I am statements, claiming to be the God of the Old Testament, declaring over and over that he is God. But that name points to his person, his nature, who he is. And that holds true with what Christ is saying about himself here. So it's not... It's not just that he points to the way and the, the truth and the life. It's that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So he's not like Elisha or Peter, whom God might use to give life to someone, raise someone from the dead. He is life. There is no life apart from Christ, apart from God. And that's one of the great ironies about rejecting him. It was God who formed the first man, Adam, from the dirt, who then God breathed life into. God was his life breath. But that's not just true for Adam. It's actually true for every single one of us, even those who reject God. Like Daniel reminded King Belshazzar in Daniel 5.23 that he was going to die in judgment for worshiping false gods rather than the one true God. He says, in whom is your life breath? You're not filling your lungs with air. God is. You're not making your heart beat. God is. Paul said the same thing to the Athenian philosophers in Acts 17.25, that the true God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. It's what God reminded the Israelites in Deuteronomy 8, that after they settle the promised land and they're good, living the good life, that they don't say in their hearts, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. We are completely dependent on God who is life for life. You can't take one more breath 
apart from being completely dependent on God who is giving you that breath. And like I said, that's the irony and ultimately the great sin that we would actually use the life, the breath, the heartbeats, the intellect, the wealth, the power that he's given us to reject him, to express the truth, to follow our own way. All the while, he's saying, I'm here. Life is found in me. And this life obviously includes eternity in his presence. We've talked about that, which again, once more brings us back to the gospel. The only way to life is through Christ, the truth. There is no other truth. And one day we will be confronted with that reality when we stand in front of the judge of the universe, God himself, and we will. Ken mentioned that last week. It's not a fairy tale. That's actually going to happen. Every single person. And on that day, the only way to life rather than to death, is to point to the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ, and say, I deserve death, but I repented of my sin, and I I turned to Christ as my Lord and Savior, and because of him paying the penalty for my sin on the cross, I have life in him. That's it. He's our only hope. He is the life. Apart from him, all other paths, including the path of my truth, only leads to death and hell for eternity. Again, I keep saying this, there's nothing more important than this. We must take this seriously. We cannot mess around with this. But as essential as that is, that's not the full extent of what it means to say Christ is the life, as he's going to say later in this conversation in chapter 17, 3, where Christ actually defines the eternal life that is only found in him by saying This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Which brings us back to where we began. Eternal life is knowing God in Christ. And not just in eternity, but right now. The life Christ offers means the moment you repent and believe, you receive a new heart that glories in the beauty of Christ and the new relationship that you enter into in him. And not only is your eternity guaranteed, like we talked about, but right now you've been changed. Right now you've been made alive in him. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that new life in Christ has very real implications right now. That new life means knowing you have nothing to fear because he is always with you. Hebrews 13, 6, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. It means Hebrews 4, 16, we can draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And by the way, we're always in need and his grace is never ending. We never come to the end of it. It means knowing that you're loved by the God of the universe so much so that John 3.16, he sent his son to die for you so you could have life in him. It means living on a sure foundation that cannot be shaken. When everything else can be shaken, this cannot be shaken, as Christ says in Matthew 24, because we build our house on him, the rock. It means finding complete satisfaction and joy in him, which John says in 1 John 1.4, he reminds us of the fellowship we have in him, and he says, I'm saying this so that that your joy may be complete. It means having peace reign in your life when there's war all around you through dependent prayer on him, him. Philippians 4, 6. 
as we let our requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It means knowing the truth, and that truth setting you free, John 8, 32. It means having life in abundance, John 10, 10. It means discovering the very reason you were created, which is to live in fellowship with Christ and glorify him in all you do, even in the mundane things like eating and drinking, as it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 30. It means being filled with the Spirit, God himself, so that we produce the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. It means your life has been set in proper order because you're no longer following sin, Satan, and self, but God in Christ, as it says in Ephesians 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at war in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Christ, the life, is all-encompassing, all-glorious in all of life from now to eternity. To say Christ is the life is to find our ultimate identity, our ultimate joy, our ultimate purpose. The only way in truth it is to find our everything. And that is why we will do anything we can to boldly and lovingly proclaim this overwhelming, life-giving truth. Which leads us to the final result we find in our text about knowing God. It means living with an eternal perspective and that eternal perspective empowering our lives right now to do the greatest work. You might notice how in this interaction, Christ continually reorients his disciples' perspective from this earth to the heavenly eternal reality. And I just think, man, how much I need that. You know, it's really depressing how much I can be (laughs) consumed with this life and just kind of have my perspective limited to this life. Some, though, may may question if that's actually bad. After all, just look look, look around how much injustice and suffering and difficulty there is in this life. I mean, there's just so much work to do here. But if you're walking around with your head in the clouds all the time, just waiting for Christ to return, that can cause you to think, who really cares? Whatever will be, will be. I'm just here for a short time, and then I'm out. And many would say, that's messed up. That's not how we should be living as Christians. And I would agree to an extent. We certainly shouldn't be living with an indifferent attitude to the difficulties in this life. That's for sure. But I wouldn't agree that that's the the result of living with our heads in the clouds, of focusing on eternity too much, that that's the direct cause and effect if we do that. That is categorically not the case, and I can say that categorically because Colossians 3, 1, 2 actually commands us to live with our minds in eternity, not earth. It says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Like we said earlier, this isn't our true home. We shouldn't be living like it is. 
That's why Christ in this text multiple times expands his disciples' view to the eternal. Yes, I'm going away, but I'm going away to heaven to prepare your eternal home. And if I'm doing that, I'm going to come back to bring you there with me to your true eternal home. That's our hope. That's what should continually be our focus. But not so that we live lives of indifference to the matters of this life. It's so that, as Scripture reminds us, those who are heavenly-minded, those who are living with an eternal perspective, are those actually who are most empowered in their lives in the here and now. And in verses 13 and 14, Christ lists two practical ways this works out, how knowing him means living with an eternal perspective that empowers our lives now. The first is in verse 13, where he says it empowers our prayer life. And whatever we ask in his name, he will do, which obviously is not an abracadabra formula where you just tack Jesus' name at the end of our prayers, and then he gives us whatever we want. Certainly doesn't mean if we just believe in him enough, we have enough faith, he'll grant us whatever we want. Can't mean that. Scripture says that in multiple places. But we don't even need to look anywhere else. The corrective is right here in verse 13 when it says that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That's what should be directing our prayers, that the Father would be glorified in the Son. And that's how this is connected to having an eternal perspective being the key to a powerful prayer life. Because if we're Christ, that means that he grows us more and more into his image through his word and his spirit so that we have his mind and his will more and more. And that means our, our perspective of the immediate, of the temporal, no longer is what continually dominates our prayer life, but rather, as Romans 12, 2 says, we're transformed by the renewal of our minds to the mind and the will of God. And so when we pray with an eternal perspective, we pray the mind and the will of God, which is always going to be to glorify him, not us, in the here and now. And he's always going to answer those prayers. So our prayer lives are transformed and powerful. And the second way having an eternal focus empowers our lives now is by our works. As it says in verse 12, we will do greater works. We'll do the greatest works. And how's this connected to being eternally minded? Well, again, it's easy for us to to read that and for our minds to kind of go straight to the temporal and think, oh, okay, so this means like we're going to do like miraculous sign works, like healings or, you know, transforming the injustice of society and and all that. And and those are are wonderful things and important, but those actually are not the greatest works. But the fact that we might automatically go there can actually unwittingly, unwittingly illustrate our kind of continual focus on the here and now over the eternal. Not that this has to be an either or, but if we find ourselves mostly focusing on temporal works, we may actually need a little bit of a perspective change. In John 6, Jesus miraculously fed thousands, but all of those people woke up hungry again the next day and wanted him to do it all over again. And although being fed is important, you know, I I don't like being hungry. I don't like seeing people starve. That's important. The far more significant issue was that 
They were spiritually empty and headed toward hell, but they were consumed by the temporal. They only wanted Christ for his temporal work so that they actually rejected him when he offered himself as the eternal bread of life. And in that interaction, he told them, don't just work for the temporal food which perishes, but work for the food that endures to eternal life through the Son. And when they said, well, what kind of work does that mean? Christ says, 629, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's the point. This whole passage we're studying is saturated in the reality. Remember, it's five chapters, but in just a matter of hours, Christ was going to the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of his people who repent and believe in him is the way. This whole passage is pointing us to the entire reason Christ came, which wasn't just to do temporal works and miracles, but that those miracles were signs pointing to the truth that he is the Messiah who came to accomplish his work through the cross, and that is the greatest work. Every time he makes a dead heart alive in him, that is the greatest work. It provides eternal life as we enter into his kingdom and his reign. And that is the greater work that we should be doing as disciples of Christ. Again, we can and should be spending time on all sorts of works, but ultimately, we are to be spending our lives doing the greatest work, praying the mind and the will of God. And if we're praying the mind and the will of God, 2 Peter 3.9 tells us, it is the will of God that no one should perish. It's the will of God to save. And he saves through his disciples preaching the gospel. As Romans 10.14 says, How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is the call on our lives by the Lord of our lives. There is no higher calling. There is no greater work than to spend our lives proclaiming the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. The world may hate our message. Christ promises us the world will hate us because it hates him. But that's just because they're lost. They're blinded by the God of this world. They're dead in their sin. And guys, I know it's, it's easy to hear this. It's easy to hear a sermon like this and, and just think, ah, man, it's just so harsh. I'd rather just be loving. But it's not loving to not warn people that they're on the path to destruction. The most loving thing you can do by far the greatest work is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ so they can enter into life in him right now and for eternity. And just as you were raised to life, the God of salvation will continue to save. He'll continue to save people. will be the last people we'd ever think would be saved. And he does it through us, through you. God does the greatest work through you as you open your mouth and boldly and lovingly proclaim the way, the truth, and the life. The God who has saved you, who loves you, whom you know, and you want everyone else to know him too. Go and live and proclaim that truth, the truth, because it is the only way to life through our glorious God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful for your word, all of which, but especially the Gospel of John, which just points to you, glorifies you, magnifies you. We're just, we stand in awe that you, God, came to this earth to save us. 
in love. I pray that that wouldn't be a truth that we've heard a gazillion times and so we just go, oh yeah, praise you God, and then go on with our lives, but that we would just be overwhelmed with that truth. So much so that we will do anything we can to proclaim it and live it to those around us so that they can be saved. And we can't wait for you to come take us to our eternal home with you. But in the meantime, we we just pray that we would boldly and lovingly proclaim your truth, that we would see, see people saved, that people here would see people saved as they proclaim your truth. That's all we want, God. We want you to be glorified in and through us. And we pray that that would happen in these next couple of songs before we leave. We love you, our Lord. Amen.